0: Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 13. The Drabblecast is a weekly podcast featuring strange stories by strange authors for strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. I thought I'd start today's episode with Drabble News, brought to us by listener and author Kendall Marchman. Check. Lapaha, Georgia. Around these parts, they're calling it Hogzilla, a 12-foot-long wild hog recently killed on a plantation and now quickly becoming a part of local legend. The plantation's owner claims the hog weighed 1,000 pounds and had 9-inch tusks. But few people have actually seen the hog, the only proof being a photo that shows the dead beast hanging from a rope. Whether the hog ever actually existed or is some sort of Faulknerian myth, it has definitely been the topic of conversation in small towns across southern Georgia. Chris Griffin said he killed the beast last month at the River Oak Plantation, where he is a hunting guide and has been showing off the picture around his small farming community ever since. The hog is nearly twice as long as the six-foot-tall Griffin, who is seen standing next to it in a photo. The picture is all Griffin has to back up his claims. He and Ken Holyoke, owner of the plantation, buried the beast on the property and did not want the hassle of slaughtering it since the meat of large feral hogs is typically not very good. Mm-hmm. Holyoke also said he decided that the hog's head wasn't worth keeping because it was too large to mount on a wall. hmm People just back up and ask, is it real? They can't believe that there's a hog that big in the woods, said Drew White, who has a copy of the photo on display at an auto parts store in Tifton, about 17 miles away. No one maintains official records on hog kills in Georgia. Imagine that. But Department of Natural Resources biologist Kent Kammermeyer, who helped write a booklet on feral hog problems in the state, said he has never heard of one as large as Hogzilla. Holyoak said the plantation's previous record was a 695-pound hog shot several years ago. Enough wild hogs roam Holyoke's plantation that he has made it a side business to allow people to hunt them. But he said, Hogzilla was too big to let someone else shoot. We killed it because we didn't want to take a chance of her getting away. If we didn't do it, somebody else would have shot it, he said. Feral hogs, popularly known as wild hogs, are domestic hogs that escape from farms and began living off the land. They lay waste to corn and peanut fields and deprive more than 100 species, including squirrels and deer, of food. It's a big problem and it's getting worse, Kammermeyer said. If you have a lot of hogs, you're going to have problems. Hogs are very aggressive. They run deer off and they could be dangerous if wounded or cornered. Holyoke said he had to climb into a deer stand a few years back to escape a raging hog that circled around for six hours, foaming at the mouth and snapping at branches. <laughs> they say bears get mad when you mess with their babies, Holyoke said. Hogs don't need a reason to get mad to come after you. Well, here's a little update to this story for you guys. National Geographic went out and did a little research on it. They actually dug it up and found that it wasn't 12 feet long and a 1,000 pounds. They determined it was 7.5 feet and approximately 800 pounds. After testing its DNA, they determined that it was a cross between a Hampshire and a wild hog. The hog's unusual size was due to its diet of hormone-fortified enhanced fish food. It ran wild on a fish farm. Incidentally, the owner of the fish farm had plans to turn the farm into a hunting reserve. They raised speculation that the farm owner purposefully released domestic female hogs and provided strategically placed food in hopes of raising such a creature. None of this was proven, but it certainly sounds plausible. I don't really have anything to add to this. It's like pretty much the perfect Drabblecast story, and it's not even made up. It's real life. What a wonderful world we live in. I hate to take so much time in the intro about this, but being from Georgia myself, I know exactly the area they found Hogzilla in, and of course I'm planning on going there this summer to pay homage to that great hormone-enhanced monstrosity's grave and uh, to of course see what other critters are running around out there pumped up on fortified growth hormones. Maybe I'll see a 500-pound beaver. Who knows? And if I do, I better shoot her, because if I don't, Somebody else will. And, of course, that leads us into today's story, Roram, by Paul Clement Chaya. Mr. Chaya is my godfather, who I haven't talked to in ten years or so, and somehow we reconnected recently. He's also a great storyteller, and sent in this piece to the Drabblecast. How cool is that? So, without further ado, Roram, by Paul Clement Chaya. Little did I realize when I turned the ignition key of the 95 Honda Civic I had just rented from Avis that I was beginning a journey into the realm of the unreal. No kidding. This is not a dig at good old number two of America's car rental firms. This is a story about how one thing leads to another, if you know what I mean. It's about what the Chinese mean when they say, I curse you with an interesting time. If I knew back then what I know now, I would have looked at the promise of having an interesting time and said, thanks, but no thanks. So let me tell you about what happened to me one time back then when I didn't know any better. Maybe it will help you to know, who knows, maybe. Well anyway, this is what happened. Because it was October and the Montessori teachers conference was being held in Boston that year, I had decided to drive there from Tulsa rather than fly. I wanted to enjoy the fall foliage and the eastern states were so famous for their travelogues. Why not take it easy? Enough of rushing everywhere, why not give myself a treat for a change? It turned out to be one of my great ideas. The scenery was beyond belief, a lot more beautiful than Oklahoma. The problem was I enjoyed the drive so much, taking rolls of pictures, stopping whenever I pleased, that I kind of lost track of time. Instead of making the trip in two days as I had planned, I finally arrived in Boston three and a half days after I had left Tulsi Town. When I finally got to the hotel, not only had the conference begun without me, but by the time I got there, every hotel in town was filled up. I found myself stuck without a room. I didn't want to miss any more of the lectures, so I turned in the rental car, stuck my bag in a locker, and began taking notes from the experts I had come to hear. Before supper, I decided I'd better find a room somehow. I didn't want to sleep in the lobby, so I bought the local paper and read the classifieds looking for a room to rent not far from the hotel. I lucked out on the first page. There was a room with bath and a home near Boston Harbor only about five or six blocks away. When I found the place, it didn't look so bad. It was an old white house with blue trimmer on the windows. It needed a paint job pretty badly, but so what? I climbed the wooden stairs to the porch, and found a sign beside the front door that said, Doorbell Out of Order. So I knocked hard, twice. The wood must have been oak, because it hurt my knuckles. A couple of minutes later, an old woman opened the door. She was wearing an old, grayish dress that was made of lace. It was dingy-looking, although still beautiful in a way. It probably once was a very expensive dress when it was still white and new. She was a little old lady, bent over by the weight of many years. She was tilting her head up to look at me. Her eyes were a soft gray, like a morning sky. Uh, hi, I said. I read in the paper that you had a room to rent. Can I rent it for the weekend? She smiled and opened the door wider, and then, without saying a word but with a nod of her head, invited me to come in. I followed her through the parlor. There were drapes in the windows and a dark red rug on the wooden floor. There was a couch with pillows on it, and in a far corner, by a side window, a wooden rocking chair. The old woman still hadn't said anything. I thought this a bit strange. I don't need a very big room, I said. Anything will do. She didn't even turn her head, but just kept walking, leading me to an old carpeted staircase that went up the second floor. It was dark up there, even though I knew it was still daylight outside. I followed about five or six steps behind her. I noticed again how small she was, and how, when she walked, bent over like that, her head would keep nodding up and down, the way birds do when they walk. She made not a sound as she climbed the stairs. Each stair I put my weight on creaked loudly. The harsh noise made me feel uncomfortable. She didn't seem to notice. When we reached the second floor, she turned right and walked about halfway down the dark hallway. She startled me by suddenly stopping, stretching up on her tippy toes and then pulling on a rope that was hanging down from the ceiling. I stopped in my tracks, really puzzled. At first it looked like she was pulling the ceiling down, but then I saw that it was a wooden staircase that was slowly swinging down, reaching on a sharp angle from the ceiling to the hallway floor. It led up to an attic. Still, without speaking, the old woman began to climb up this rickety ladder that had thin plain wood two-by-four handrails on each side. For some reason, I began to feel a little bit nervous. I knew there was nothing to be scared of. I, I mean, she was only an old lady who was just leading me up to a room I could rent. But it was because she had not spoken one word to me yet that I was beginning to get the creeps. I followed her up, hoping the thing wouldn't break under my weight. It was pitch black and musty up there in the attic. She reached up to pull a light string I hadn't seen, and snap, the place was filled with light. There was a large four-poster bed on one wall. Its headboard was beside the window. There was a small night table that had a drawer with a shiny brass ring on it to pull it open, and there was a simple wooden chair at the foot of the bed with a wool blanket carefully folded up on its seat. Across from the bed, Against the other wall was a tall chest of drawers with a small lamp on it. Next to it, pinned to the wall, was an old calendar. I walked past the old lady who was still standing underneath the bare bulb of the ceiling light and stopped right in the middle of the attic just to get a feel for the place. The bed was on my left, the chest of drawers on my right, and the silent old woman was behind me. It was then that I looked straight ahead and almost jumped out of my skin. A standing figure startled me, until I realized it was me. There was this full-length mirror about four yards in front of me, and I was in it. My mouth was open, and my eyes wide with fear. I looked pale. It was an eerie sensation to suddenly find myself there, like a twin staring back at me right into my eyes. I think the fright must have made me gasp out loud, I don't think I had let out a scream, I don't think I have ever screamed in my life, but I tell you this, it did rattle me. It was a tall mirror, oval-shaped, framed in a beautiful polished wood, and it hung on a wooden stand about five feet away from the further wall. It's amazing how something as common as a stand-up mirror can scare the bejesus out of you. The sudden apparition of another, there right in front of me, certainly got my adrenaline shooting through my blood system. When I came back to myself, I noticed I could see the reflection of the old woman there in the mirror, way behind my right shoulder. She was just standing there, bent over a bit and looking at me. I found my attention fixed on her image. It was as if I was compelled to stare back into her eyes, which I could barely make out. Strange as it might seem, I felt challenged by her. It was as if the two of us were in a staring match in a fifth-grade classroom of the distant past. Our souls were locked together in a primitive duel. We were looking deep into each other and I didn't know why but I knew I couldn't stop. My head began to ache from the strain. I began to feel a little dizzy and then I saw her image slowly getting smaller and smaller in the mirror. It was as if she was drifting backwards and deeper and deeper into the mirror but never breaking contact with my eyes. I felt an urge to turn around to see what was really happening. What was going on in the mirror seemed impossible, but I did not want to be the one who gave in and broke eye contact. I didn't want to lose this staring contest with her. I never liked losing a game, any game, no matter who it was with or where. I stood my ground and kept on staring, more determined than ever. Suddenly, everything began to go haywire, crazy, fall apart. I felt myself being pulled toward the mirror as if by a powerful magnet. I stiffened my body and tried with all my might to keep my feet planted on the floor. I remember straining my neck, pulling back my head, which more than any other part of my body felt being pulled toward, not the mirror, but to her eyes, deep, deep within the mirror. And then all of my strength left me, and I left the floor. And I began to fly head first toward the middle of the mirror. And it was all happening in slow motion, like in a dream, but I was terrified. I remember being afraid my head was going to crash into the glass with a mirror and get cut. Instinctively, I put my hands straight out in front of my face as if I were diving into a pool. When my outstretched fingertips hit the mirror, it didn't feel hard. It didn't hurt. I just went right through the glass as if it were water. I went diving straight through to the other side. I even expected a splash, but there wasn't any. The force from the old woman's eyes was pulling me headlong straight as an arrow, and when my body passed completely through the surface of the mirror, I began to fly faster and faster toward the woman's face, which kept getting smaller and smaller. Everything within the mirror's imaging became a blur, I guess from the speed I was flying, and my ears became filled with the sound of the rushing wind, and then I must have passed out because the next thing I remember is waking up stretched out on my belly on the wooden floor of the attic. I got up onto my feet and looked back in the plain back side of the mirror. I looked beyond it and saw only an empty room. The old woman was not there. She was not in the attic. She was not there under the ceiling light bulb anymore. There was only the light bulb string hanging down. I turned around slowly, 360 degrees and I could not see her anywhere in that musty room. The next thing I noticed made my heart stop. Everything in the room was reversed. The four-poster bed was now on the right side of the attic. I ran over to the chest of drawers, now over there on the left, and looked at the calendar pinned up on the wall alongside of it. My stomach drew into a painful knot when I saw the name of the year and month printed in large red letters on the top of the page. 1881 yam my god it was like i was still inside the mirror's image panic filled my body and soul i never felt so lost in all of my life god help me god help me i began to pray instinctively i ran over to the mirror and hit it with my fist wham it was hard it hurt my knuckles oh my god I was stuck inside the mirror's reversed world. It couldn't be so. This is unreal. I went back to the calendar, hoping that my eyes had played a trick on me. No. It still read 1881 YAM. And all the days of the week were written backwards, and all the numbers below were reversed. And then I noticed I was touching the page of the calendar with my left hand, even though I was normally right-handed. Oh, my God! Even I was a reversed image. I was inside the mirror. I was inside the mirror. I wasn't real anymore. Did that mean I was dead? A cold sweat broke out of my skin. I remember thinking, well, at least something proves I'm still alive. I may be frightened half to death, but if I'm sweating, I'm still alive. I sat down on the big bed. The mattress was extremely soft, and I sunk deeply into it. It must be made of down, I remember thinking. Oh, what am I going to do? I asked myself aloud. How the heck am I going to get out of here? I had confidence in my ability to think. Problem solving was one of my better skills ever since I took on algebra in sixth grade. I just had to get a hold of myself, calm down, begin to think clearly. I took some deep breaths, relaxed my body completely began to empty my mind of all thoughts, began to center myself. I closed my eyes and soon began to feel my personal deep energy build up from the inside. I began to see a bright light. I began to feel peace. I remained in my meditative state of unknowing for a timeless time and then gently brought myself out of it and opened my eyes and stood up from the bed. Things were still reversed, of course, but I knew now that I had to find something that could get me back to reality again. I needed some magical key that could match the inherent magic of that mirror and open it enough. Just enough so I could slip back to where I belonged. The solution came to me in a flash. The old light bulb lit up inside my mind like it does in the comics. Fight fire with fire. Overcome a mirror with another mirror. Of course! If I could look at the images of the big mirror through the imagery of another mirror, then all that was reversed would be reversed back to normal. 1881 Yam would become 1881 May, and strange me would revert back to the ordinary old me. My heart soared like an eagle, as the saying goes, and I smiled for the first time since this nightmare began. But where was I going to find another mirror? I once again made a slow 360-degree look around, noticing that I was turning counterclockwise. But that didn't bother me. I now regained my self-confidence, and I knew I was on my way to victory. Just then, my eyes focused on the small night table beside the bed. Where else would a lady keep her hand mirror than on her night table? Three strides, and I was there. I pulled open the beautiful wood drawer and saw her hand mirror lying neatly on top of some silk scarves. Great! I picked up the sweet little mirror in my left hand, closed the drawer, and walked over with it to the standing oval mirror, the only doorway back to my reality. I stood directly in front of it, closer than arm's reach. I looked myself in the eyes, smiled serenely at myself, and then turned around. Slowly, I raised the hand mirror up before my face, a little to the side. I looked through it at the reflection of my reflection, bouncing back and forth from one mirror's depth to the other mirror's depth, back and forth, back and forth, until I began to feel dizzy and funny and began to hear the roar of wind in my ears like before, and then feeling my soul take wind, whoosh! I took off backwards, still holding onto that hand mirror. It was like doing a backflip from a diving board. I felt this cool wave pass over my body as I went through the mirror. And I was back on the other side. I made it. My mirror trick had worked. What a clever guy I am. I had even done a neat front shoulder roll when I hit the attic floor, bringing me right back up to my feet. I looked down at my right hand, and it was still holding the hand mirror tightly. I wasn't about to let go of that baby. I ran to the hole in the floor, scrambled down the wooden ladder, just about jumped down the flight of carpeted stairs, and was out the door and onto the street in less time than you could say, holy schmoly." Now, all of this happened to me fifteen years ago. I still have that small hand mirror that got me back from the realm of the unreal. I've kept it not because I need to prove to myself what happened that day in Boston, I have no doubt at all about what happened up there in that attic. No, I keep that small mirror in my chest of drawers to remind me every morning that the very thing that can foul things up for me can be used to make things all right again. All it takes is a little bit of ordinary magic, and I can do that. Give me a mirror, and I'm a magician. Shazam! Abracadabra! Open sesame! Open sesame! Well that's our story, I hope you liked it. I had a feeling the minute that old lady answered the door in the story, that she would be hell bent on trapping him in a dyslexic alternate dimension of some sort. Listen, Craigslist is full of old ladies like that, with sublets or addicts to rent, and you know what, it's just, you, you hear stories about it happening, but you're like, nah, it could never happen to me, and I really need a place for the summer, and she seems nice, utilities are included. Uh, There's an Applebee's down the road. And then wham! Next thing you know, you're getting sucked into a sofa. Well, that's all for this week. Tune in next week for episode 14 of the Drabblecast. Post your comments on the website and send your stories to be featured in the Drabblecast to goatkeeper at hotmail.com. I'm your host, Norm Sherman, reminding you that if you don't shoot it, somebody else is gonna... around him like clothing, all tussled and ready to toss, all tussled and ready to toss. He mutters these words to his lackey, when he comes, this in his butt.